I also found an, an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought to not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are so thankful to again to be in your house, to worship you, to praise your name. And Lord, we pray, Lord, as we focus on the resurrection of your son, the hope of our salvation is dependent on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, teach us, instruct us. If there's anyone in this room who is not a follower of you, who is not a Christian, they're religious, they're spiritual, they believe in you maybe, but they do not have Jesus as their Lord. They do not have Jesus as their Savior. Lord, I pray that you would open their hearts and minds to the truth, that they, and that you would make them ask the question, if the resurrection of Christ did exist, what does that mean? What does that mean to me? And what shall I do? Lord, we pray that you would be with those who are not with us, pray that you would comfort them, that you would watch over them, that you would encourage them this day. Lord, we love you, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, our kids are going to stay up here uh, during this uh, service, and so um, we won't have child care. If you do have babies, we do have a nursery if you want to take them downstairs. Um, so like I said, I'm going to try to interlock some these two, two stories. One is the conversion of Paul in Acts chapter 9, and then Paul, who's now a Christian, preaching the gospel to the men of Athens in the Areopagus. Um, but before I get into that, um, I always like to kind of, kind of present an introduction. Um, the title of this of this sermon is the Great Reversal. The Great Reversal. Um, I've, I've had people ask me this recently, and I've kind of told this story a few different times. Is that I think during the past twelve months, uh, the the moment that COVID was really was real to me, that uh, I, I felt a sense of of sadness, grief was last Easter. Um, I'm not one to cry very often. I'm not one to get all that emotional. But for some reason, that particular Sunday last year, on Easter Sunday, obviously we were, we were not worshiping together. Uh, there were very few churches at all that were worshiping last Easter because of the, the quarantine. Uh, and so me and Denton and Robert came here on Saturday, 
and, and videotaped music and liturgy and, and, my, and the sermon that I gave. And the room was empty. I think Denton and Robin had already left, and I was doing it alone. And I was sitting back there with a videotape in front of me. I was, we were preaching. I was preaching from Ezra. And I was getting to the end of the sermon, and I started to cry. I, again, I'm not very emotional. I don't usually cry very often. I've never cried from the pulpit ever. And that particular Sunday, my heart was sad because we were not together on Easter. The church was not together on Easter. I had a moment of lament. Um, I say that because... This year has been difficult. The last 12 months has been difficult for many people, some more than others. Some have lost family members who have died. Some have been maybe evicted from their home. Some have lost jobs. People are struggling in different ways. There is a a psalm, Psalms chapter 88, which I think is very appropriate for this past 12 months. The psalmist writes, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Shoal. I'm counted amongst those who go down to the pit. I am a man with no strength. He kind of continues here and In verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I have shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. And then the psalmist says, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Why are you doing what you're doing? That is the kind of the question that we usually ask during times of crisis, during times of lament, times of sadness. Why? I was reading an article this week. It was like pictures of the last 12 months. Different pictures that kind of represent the impact of coronavirus. There's a picture of a hospital staff black and white, and they're basically in a blur because they are moving from patient to patient, which represents the overwhelmed hospitals. We've had a few hospital workers here in our church who have explained to me how overwhelmed they were, how much they had to work, how exhausted they were. They didn't lose maybe a family member, but they definitely felt the drain and the overwhelming stress that many were feeling, that were working in the hospital. There's also a picture in Las Vegas during this time that a homeless shelter had to be closed, and so they had nowhere to take people who were guests at this homeless shelter, so the only place that they put them was in a parking lot. There's beds scattered across this parking lot where the homeless were living. The thought was, well, couldn't they have stayed in these, apart- these hotels and these casinos that were empty? But they were instead sleeping outside on beds in a parking lot. There's another picture of a mass burial spot in New York City where coffins were put two by two by two of those who have died during the coronavirus. There's pictures of people in isolation, having no connection to anyone. 
Pictures of people being evicted from their homes. Pictures of holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas where family members weren't there because of, because of the virus. Either some had passed away or others weren't able to visit or travel because of the virus. Frustration, sorrow, loneliness, sheer inability to understand why God would let this happen. Is there any praise, Lord, by making it where we can't come to worship on Easter Sunday? How are you praised by that? How is that good for you? That was a question I was asking myself as I was preaching to a camera. How is this good? Why would God allow this to happen? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, says the psalmist? Why would you let this happen? So fascinating is that had to have been the feeling of the disciples after they saw Jesus crucified. How could this be good? How could this be proper? How could God allow this to happen? I thought he was the son of the living God. I thought he was the Christ. I thought he was the Messiah. I thought he was the son of David. How would, why would God allow this to happen? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? What good is Jesus in the grave? The disciples were probably asking themselves, frustrated, lonely, sorrowful, a sheer inability to understand. This is what I want you to catch today. Behold the risen Lord and be declared loved in Christ by God. Behold the risen Lord and be declared loved in Christ by God. Let's start with this. Going back to Acts chapter 17, point number one is a forest of idols, a forest of idols. Before verse 22, Paul is in, uh, is in Athens, he's, he's waiting for Timothy to, to come meet him, uh, and he's walking around the city, and he recognizes and he observes that this is a city full of idols, verse 16 of Acts 17. The, these idols in these temples, I don't know if you've ever been to Athens. I have been to Athens. And yes, there's temples. People go to Athens to see the kind of the sites of the ancient Greek civilization. At that time, these were considered works of art. Very similar of you going to a museum of art and, 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 and kind of observing the talents of artists from around the world. People would go to Athens to look at the temples of the gods and the statues of the gods, and they would recognize this as works of art, as masterpieces, but they always also would recognize these as idols, as gods. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that idols represent what? Demons. People were worshiping demons. They were worshiping gods that do not exist. Some of y'all who've been to Nepal recognize this. This is not foreign to you. You've been to Kathmandu and you've seen gods and idols all over the place. There's gods and idols on every corner, like there is Walgreens or whatever it is in our, in our country, Walmarts. There's gods everywhere. People constantly walking by them. Some people actually identifying them and, and worshiping them or doing certain things to them. Athens was a free city. It was the cultural center of the world, the home of democracy, the home of high intellectual thought. 
And so Paul recognizes this. He starts to have conversations with the people of Athens, and he brings up the topic of Jesus and the resurrection. And the people of Athens are like, oh, that must be one God and then some divine power or some divine healing. Revelation, the Greek word, means Anastasia. I mean, the word is Anastasia. And, and it's a word that maybe they recognize that the resurrection, maybe with his own divine power, his own divine God, as if Paul was talking about two separate gods, Jesus and the resurrection. They were not understanding. They were interested, though. They wanted to hear more. And so they bring him to the Areopagus, this hill where they would have very high conversations and debates. They would talk about religion and morals. I can't think of anything that would be uh, similar to this. Maybe if uh, you were invited to go on the, on the, the show The View or whatever we consider uh, high intellectual conversation. Uh, whatever people can uh, uh, connect with, oh, oh you're getting invited and we want to hear what you have to say. I, I got probably one time it was, uh, um, you know, CNN with, uh, oh, I've forgotten his name, um, uh, Larry King, right? Larry King would bring in intellectuals and they would have discussions and debates, talk about religion or politics. So they bring Paul to talk about his views, his thoughts, his opinions, his his. His new religion, they like to hear new things. And, Jesus, and Paul was talking about Jesus and the resurrection. And so he goes and he, he then begins in verse 22 to talk about, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. It's been on display for me to see all your different idols and your temples and that you are a very religious people. Some have said that the Greeks in Athens were the most religious people in the world. Paul identifies, he, he affirms this view. And he wasn't trying to use this as flattery speech, right? He's not trying to build goodwill with the men of Athens as a, as a, as a strategy of debate. They would have looked down upon that. He was, he was making an observation. He was saying, this is a very religious people. What's so interesting about it is that Paul, the man who is speaking to these people in the Areopagus, was a man who wasn't all that different than them, a man who considered himself very religious. He even says about himself in Philippians 3 that he was the most zealous of his, of, of his people, that he was uh, Hebrew of Hebrew, Pharisee, zealous for God blameless in every way. He was a man who supported uh, a view of God that fit what he wanted to be true about God. A God that you had to earn favor with, and a God who would despise all the people that Paul despised. That was the God that Paul worshipped before he was a Christian. Many people have objects of their worship that suits what they want to be true, that suits what they want and what they desire. Some want a God who judges the immoral and judges the irreligious. Some people want a God who embraces all and judges no one. People want to form a God, they, they want to worship an object that they're comfortable with, that 
is driven by their personal wants and needs than by reason. If you think this is crazy, I'm a Tennessee fan. I went to the University of Tennessee. On Saturdays in the fall, that isn't a worship event. It's going to be off. If, if you're a Kentucky fan, Rump Arena during the winter is a worship event. People worship the sports teams that they adore. Their sports teams give them what they desire. It fills needs. For some people, it's material things. It's gaining more things. It's buying a new car or having what is, whatever's good. Or whatever People say, oh, that's a really nice car. That's a really nice home. That's a really nice whatever. For some, it's money. Some, it's the approval of others. For some, it's sex or power. People have objects of their worship that fit their comforts, fit their needs, fit their wants. Paul was not any different than the men of Athens. And actually, most Americans aren't any different than the men of Athens. Paul could come to our world and say, ah, I identify, y'all are very religious. I see all the things that you worship. I see all the things that give you hope. Point number two is, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Paul then continues in his, in his kind of speech here uh, to the men of Athens. He, he says, uh, I, I noticed that you're very religious, for I have passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I also found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What, what, would that, what does that mean? What, why would they have an, inscri- an altar with an inscription of the unknown God? They're ignorant of the God whose honor had first been erected. They're confessing their ignorance that there is a God that they do not know. That they are ignorant of who he is. They are ignorant of his character. They are ignorant of his attributes. Ignorant of his ways. Going back to Nepal, but the Hindus worship unknown gods. It's actually proven that uh, when, when, when people have gone to India and done studies on the, the religion of the, the, of, of the, the, the Hindu religion, they identify funny, interesting things that, yeah, they see millions of gods, but what they actually see is that Hindus believe in one supreme God, but they just don't know who he is. And so by that, they create all these miniature gods, these many, many, many gods to represent the one true God because they are ignorant of God. He's unknown to them. The unknown nature of the divine. They, the, a phrase to describe the Hindus is the one and the many. They worship the one by the many. People like to customize something that they're ignorant of. Um, and this was the issue with Paul. He, he customized his view of God. Uh, this is from a prominent atheist who says, I have motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. This is important. He's also concerned to prove that there's no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. The problem with the world, the problem with the men of Athens, the problem with Paul as well, is that they want a God of their own creation. But by doing that, by customizing their God, they're actually ignorant of the one true God. Many people are building altars to an unknown God because they do not know him. They're ignorant. Paul 
Very similarly, and when he is on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, when he is blinded by the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, who are you, Lord? He's ignorant of who Jesus is. He's ignorant. To him, he is an unknown God that he does not know. He calls him Lord, but he does not recognize who he is. He does not know who he is. Paul's own customization was due to his own ignorance of God. Paul recognized and believed that God was one who, had, who accepted and gave favor to those who followed the law and did everything they were supposed to. He was so ignorant of that, the actual true God. Even when Paul was led to, to have Stephen uh, martyred, they were so angry because Stephen talked about the coming of the righteous one, and they saw that as blasphemy. That, that, Jesus Christ is not God, and the God that you believe that sent Jesus in the world is not the God that we worship. It's not the God that we hold to be true. So Paul, after Stephen is, crucified, is killed uh, and is on his way to Damascus to, to have other Christians killed and arrested. He's on his way to Damascus. He's blinded by the light. He notices, is like, who is this Lord? And he starts to wonder if this is the risen Jesus Christ that he had been hearing about, that he would say it's blasphemy. There's no way that anyone could raise from the dead. And Jesus Christ was a false prophet, and that's why he was crucified, and that's why he died, because God would not send his son in the world to be crucified and if that is the risen Lord, things really do change for Paul. Paul believed that God favored highly moral and disciplined people. For some people in our culture, we believe God only, God only loves, loves me and wants me to be happy. My sin is not following my heart's desire. There's so many people that are ignorant of who God is, his who he truly is. The Israelites at Mount Sinai were ignorant who God was. Yeah, God saved them from Egypt. He rescued them from Egypt, but they were ignorant of God. And what did God do? He put himself on display on the mountain and he gave them the law. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt, he said. And this is what Paul says here in Acts 17. He starts to explain to the men of Athens who God truly is. They are ignorant of this God. And he says, I this, I, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. And so he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He is the creator. This God that you have identified as the unknown God, he is the creator of everything. He is the sustainer of everything. Everything is, is held into place because of God's power and his wisdom. Paul continues and says that, uh, that God is also sovereign over man. As if as this God, who is the creator and sustainer and sovereign Lord over everything, would need anything from man. As if he would need a house to live in. He's not served by human hands. He's not needed for he doesn't need anything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. He even says here in verse 28, for we are indeed his offspring. He's also the father. 
He supplies everything. All are created by him. The Greeks thought themselves superior to everyone else because they had democracy and they had wisdom and philosophy, and they considered barbarians beneath them. But yet, Paul is instructing them and says, there is no partiality. God is the creator of everyone, every man, every woman. All were created by him. He supplies everything that you have and need. Why does God do this? Why does he create? Why does he give life? Why does he give breath? Why does he give everything? Why does he determine your allotted place and boundaries? Paul says here in verse 27 that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. He wants to be known. He wants his creation to know him. He does not want his creation to be ignorant of him. In him we live and move and have our being. God is near. The world is hungry for blessings. They're hungry for relationship. They're hungry for, to be loved. They're hunger, hungry for recognition and security. The reason why people hunger for this stuff is because you're created to have it. But the only place to have it is in God. And so creating these idols and these, these, these altars to the unknown God, they're ignorant of the one true God, and they're seeking these things, they're seeking blessings, they're seeking uh, recognition, they're seeking wisdom and knowledge when God is actually not that far. Those things prove that God is actually not very far. Your desires are fulfilled in God. What did Adam? Adam was created... Eve was created, they were placed in the garden, and they were given everything by God. What we need to sustain us, to nourish us, is in God. Third point is, I am Jesus, verses 30 to 31. Paul says the time of ignorance is over. There's a fresh start Verse, thir uh, verse 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. There's a fresh start. He's, he's telling the men of Athens that there's a, there's a new start here. There's a fresh start. You can, now, you can know God. Your ignorance is, there's no excuse for your ignorance. There's especially no excuse for your ignorance now. He says, repent, turn away. Turn away from your ignorance. Turn away from your unbelief. Your unbelief leads to sin. God is there. God created you to want God and to be in his presence and to receive his blessings. We have come to a point in our, in our world where and it's really kind of started back in the 18th century during the time of the Enlightenment where progress was detached from God. Science has the means to, to, give, to give humans and, and, and societies the means to achieve happiness and to fill desires. And this was the viewpoint for, from 1750 all the way up to the 20th century that, get, that science will bring us forward, that we can progress as a society as we gain in knowledge. We can care for the poor. We can be moral. 
But then what ended up happening? There was two world wars. Millions of people died. Maybe science can't progress us. But instead of going back to God, they went to technology and to politics. You even hear politicians say things like, my fellow Americans, I'm confident we will succeed in the mission because we are on the right side of history. As if you're on the right side of progressive politics, you will be on the, the right side of history. For some, it's technology. The more technology we have, the more access to technology, the happier we will be. As if all we need is Netflix and we'll be okay. But what we need, what we desire, is a belief in the one who created everything. The belief in the one who sent his son to save. What we have to recognize is what Pastor didn't preach about on Friday is that we are sinful. There is none, there's none that are righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.9 says. There's none that is righteous. And the reason why Christ went to the cross is because none are righteous. None can have relationship with the Holy God because of their sin. But you, get a diff- you also get a but now, like you have here in Acts 17. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This will to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sin. This Jesus is the key to everything. This Jesus is the key to the ignorance of man when it comes to God. The key is Christ. This Jesus, by a man whom he has appointed, the Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God, willingly went to his death. I I was reading this last night. I think this is like, I mean, I can't use this terminology, so I'm not going to, but you're just kind of like blown away by Jesus' power. And, it, and it's, it's not after the resurrection. It's actually before his crucifixion. He's standing before Pilate, right? This is John 19, 11. And this is just amazing. He's standing before Pilate. Pilate's asking him all these questions. And uh, this is, yeah, uh, John 19. So Pilate says to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Pilate thinks, man, I am the man. Everyone will do whatever I say. I can kill whoever I want. I can do whatever I want. I'm the, I'm the governor of this area. Right? I'm, I'm Caesar's man. And so Jesus is in front of Pilate, and Pilate's like, do you want me to release you? I can do that. I have the authority to do whatever I want. I can crucify you, or I can release you. I don't care what these people say. I can do whatever I want. And what does Jesus say? Jesus answered him. He doesn't speak, but now he speaks. He says, you would have no authority over me at, at all unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Meaning, you have no power in this situation. You have no authority in this situation. Jesus is like, I have all the authority. I can literally snap my fingers and I could do whatever I want. But I am willingly laying my life down for the sake of sin. I have all the authority. 
See, people miss out on the crucifixion. They think Jesus is this humble servant and, and teacher, and oh, how poor Jesus is crucified, and he's such an innocent man. You have no idea the identity of Jesus Christ. He has all the authority in the world. He has all the authority, and he's standing before this guy who thinks he has all the authority, and actually, the guy has no authority. And Jesus is like, by the way, I'm here because I want to be here, and I'm going to the cross because I want to go there. This is my Father's will, and we are bringing redemption into the world. The power of Christ. He was rejected. He was sacrificed. He took on the weight of your sin. All of that weight, all the things you see, all the sin, all the junk, all the, all the crud, everything you can think about in your heart and your mind that you have done or will do, Jesus took on the cross. All the wrath of God on your sin was placed upon him. That's not the end of the story. He raised him from the dead to prove his lordship, to prove that God accepted his sacrifice. See, Jesus could have gone on the cross and died, for your, and died on a cross, but then if he stayed in the grave, then God would not have accepted his work or accepted his sacrifice. The resurrection proves that God accepts his sacrifice. To prove that he is a great and perfect advocate for sinners. If he had stayed in the grave and death had conquered him, he would be a horrible advocate for your sins. Horrible. Because sin actually had power over him. But yet he conquered death, he exalted, and God exalted him above every name. He was vindicated. He put sin and death to flight. The great serpent has been crushed by Christ Jesus because he rose from the dead. If he had stayed in the grave, Genesis 3.15 would not have been fulfilled. The promise of that Adam and Eve were hoping so much would happen, happened in Christ because he conquered the grave. This is who Paul met. When Paul was on his way to Damascus, he met the risen Lord. The Athenians are told by Paul, this risen Lord, this man who God has appointed is coming to judge the world in righteousness. He is Jesus the Lord. He has conquered sin and death. He is the Lord of all. He has been given the name above all names. And this is the fourth point. But what if Jesus did rise from the dead? Paul says to the men of Athens that he was raised from the dead, and this has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This gives assurance of his lordship. It gives assurance of repentance and faith in him. The death of Christ. See, the reason why Paul was so committed to getting rid of Christianity is because he, he believed that there's, there's no... Why would you worship Jesus if he died a criminal's death? I mean, why would you worship the, a man of God who is rejected. What godly king is crucified? How could he possibly be the Messiah? How could he possibly be the Christ? How could he possibly be the son of God if he was crucified? That makes no sense. And therefore, we are going to treat these people as a bunch of heretics who should be gotten rid of because they're horrible Jews. Worshiping a criminal. But the resurrection changes that completely. So when Paul sees Jesus, the risen Lord, on the road to Damascus, things start to change for Paul. 
Jesus says, I'm Jesus. In the light of the resurrection, Jesus was cursed, but then vindicated. He died, but then was raised from the grave. So obviously Paul's like, well, if he was cursed, but then risen, he must have then died for someone else. He must have been cursed for another reason. Galatians chapter 3, 10 through 13. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteousness shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Jesus Christ, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul writes this, recognizing that if, it was, if Jesus rose from the dead, then yes, he was cursed for our sins. He was cursed because we are lawbreakers. Think about the objections to Christianity. Do any of the questions or the objections of Christianity, if true mean that Jesus could not have risen from the dead. So you're like, well, I don't believe in Christianity because of their view on homosexuality. Well, I don't believe in Christianity because um, um, I can't do whatever I want. It, it presents rules and laws and things like that. Whatever objections that people have to Christianity. But again, it's like, well, if Jesus rose from the dead, that has very little to do with your sexual ethics. What if Jesus rose from the dead? Your sexual ethics do matter because if Jesus, the Son of God, who spoke and taught and his word is in, the, in God's word and he rose from the dead, well then obviously Jesus is the Lord and the Son of God. And he does have something to say to us because he's conquered death. Many people, the reason why they don't follow Christianity because it doesn't fit with who they are. But what if Jesus has risen from the dead? Even if the thought is, well, Christianity doesn't really fit with who I am. Jesus rose from the dead. That changes everything. Your whole worldview, it may not fit within the God's word, but Jesus rose from the dead. What worldview has that in it? Jesus rose from from the dead. Paul recognizes if Jesus is risen from the dead, my entire worldview is crushed, completely demolished. And that's why he says, what you would have, what would you have for me to do, Lord? You are obviously the Lord. You are obviously the one who has authority. You're obviously God. What do you want me to do? Well, obviously he follows Jesus to he later on is preaching in the synagogues about Jesus, the Son of God. These men of Athens, some of them mock, Christ, mock Paul when he talks about the resurrection of Christ. Some join him and believe him. What would you have me do, Lord? Faith in the one who died and then was raised in victory. Faith unites, unites yourself in his vindication. As God accepts Christ's sacrifice through his resurrection, as you put your faith in him and your trust in him, as you identify with him and his cross, you're accepted by God due to your union in Christ. 
because Jesus was accepted by his Father, because Jesus was loved by his Father through the resurrection, your unity in Jesus, you receive the same acceptance. You receive the same vindication. Romans chapter 6, 5 through 11. For if we have been united with him in death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. That we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you trust in Christ, if you identify with Christ and his cross, you're united in his vindication and in his resurrection. Sin and death have no power over you whatsoever. As it was conquered and crushed by Jesus, it is also crushed and conquered in your life as well because of Christ, because of his resurrection. Hebrews 13, 5, he will never leave us or forsake us. Why? Because of our union in Christ. Not because, well, God loves me, right? And he would never let any bad thing happen to me. No, no, no. It is your identity in Christ that you can say that. If you do not have identity, if you don't believe in Jesus, you cannot say that. God will, doesn't know you. You do not know God. And so he is far from you. As God showed us love for Christ by not abandoning him to the grave. He loves us in our faith in Christ. He declares us his own by our faith in Christ. He declares us his own. As he declared Christ in the resurrection, he declares you as his son or daughter because of your identity with Christ. The topic, the theme of the Friday and Sunday was the good news. The good news is quite simple, really. What does it ask of you? If Jesus died on the cross, if, if your sins are real, if you have sinned against the Holy God and Christ went to the cross to, to pay for those sins, and then he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, what, what, what are you to do? What, what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to respond? The first thing is to trust in Christ's sacrifice. Accepted sacrifice, that God accepts Christ's work for your sins, that he is the means of salvation and redemption for your sins. Why? Because look at the cross and look how he was raised from the dead. Therefore, God accepts his sacrifice for your sins. So trust in Christ. Trust in him. Identify with Jesus as the means of your salvation. The second thing is actually quite simple as well. Claim your prize. If you are identifying with Christ, if you trust in his sacrifice, what does that mean? You have freedom from sin and death. You have freedom from sin and death. As the hymn says, a thousand sacred sweets that you have in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus is all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. 
This is your prize. Why would you argue? Why would you, why would you not claim it? Claim your prize. Trust in Christ. Identify with Christ and be free from sin and death. Be free. The building block that was rejected became a cornerstone of a whole new world. A new world where sinners are accepted by God and God dwells with sinners because of their identification with Jesus Christ and their unity with him. A world where God has made himself known and adopts sinners as his his children who transforms them, gives them victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus' nails and the visible wounds are there to prove what he did and that he is alive and has conquered sin and death. If you ever think to yourself, I feel condemned, you're not in Christ Jesus. I feel worthless, you're not in Christ Jesus. You're not. A world that continues to tell people, you got to do it this way or do it that way, or you're condemned or worthless. And Jesus says, no, identify with me, trust in me, and you are worthy. You are vindicated. You are accepted. You are loved. Not because you did anything to deserve it, but because Christ did it for you. Claim your prize. Claim it. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. In a council culture, in a world that's canceling people one after the other, Christianity says you are accepted. None are canceled if you identify with Christ Jesus. If you love him, if you trust in him and identify him, you are loved. This is the good news to a soul that cries out in the darkness. This is the good news when the, when the heart and the soul is crying out, is your love declared in darkness? Are your wonders known in the darkness? The answer is yes. There is a, a, a quote from a woman who was uh, struggling with a disease and, and uh, chronic pain. And a pastor asked, it was counseling her and caring for her. And she had this phrase, she would say, nothing the resurrection can't cure. Nothing the resurrection doesn't cure. The answers to our our groaning, the answers to our cries in our hearts, whatever time frame, whatever situation, COVID, whatever, the answer is the resurrection of Christ. There's nothing the resurrection doesn't cure. So I want to encourage you on this Easter Sunday, behold the risen Lord, behold him, trust in him, identify with him, identify with the risen Lord who conquered sin and death, who conquered the grave and be declared love by the Creator God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So, Lord, I thank you so much for this, this opportunity, Lord, to come into your word and to, and to uh, be challenged by it, to meditate on it, to meditate on the, the historical event of Christ's resurrection. Paul, this person who knew everything about the Old Testament and and lived a blameless life, recognized that the risen Lord, the risen Christ, changes everything that he believed. The same thing for the men of Athens who who are hearing Paul talk about God and and, and that God is known and that he is near and to seek after him. 
but the resurrection of the Lord as the assurance of our knowledge of who God is and our salvation in God. The resurrection of Christ. The one question, the one event in the history of this world that brings a lot of implications. People want to live their life the way they want to live it. They want to do what they want to do. They want to create a God or customize a God to their own comfort, to their own wants or desires. Even if that means there is no God, whatever it is. But the historical event of Christ's resurrection, if Christ rose from the dead, what does that mean? And how should I respond? If you trust in Christ and you trust in his resurrection, you are free from sin and death. And you're saved from the life, the life of, of judgment and separation from God. Lord, I pray that you would just press upon people the truth of that. Lord, I pray that you would lead them to repentance. You would lead them to faith. And that you would save them, Lord.